Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for August 2018. I'm Neil Orford, and this is where we go through the literature that caught our eye in intensive care for the last month or two. So let's start with the culprit shock investigators article in the New England Journal of Medicine recently. In 2017, the culprit shock investigators reported that in patients with multivessel coronary artery disease and acute MI with cardiogenic shock, PCI of the culprit lesion only with the option of staged revascularization of non-culprit lesions was superior to immediate multivessel PCI with the difference driven mainly by a significantly lower mortality in the culprit lesion only PCI group. We also learnt that 30-day mortality in this group was really high, that is 44 to 50%. And there was a lot of ICU circulatory and ventilatory support, so 80% of patients were ventilated. This article is a follow-up article, and it reports the one-year follow-up. So death occurred in 50% of culprit lesion-only PCI participants versus 57% in the multi-vessel PCI group, which is a relative risk of 0.88, but 95% confidence intervals of 0.76 to 1.01. Recurrent infarct occurred in 1.7% in the culprit lesion-only group and 2.1% in the multi-vessel group. And that wasn't significant. Rate of composite of death or recurrent infarct was 51 versus 58%. A relative risk of 0.87 and 95% confidence intervals of 0.76 to 1.00. Repeat revascularization occurred more frequently with the culprit lesion only PCI group. That was 32% versus 9% relative risk of 3.44, 95% confidence intervals of 2.4 to 4.5. Rehospitalization for heart failure also occurred more frequently with the culprit lesion only group, 5.2 versus 1.2%. So overall, this is interesting. So the culprit lesion PCI strategy compared to multivessel PCI for patients with AMI and cardiogenic shock reports short-term mortality benefits with culprit lesion only PCI but these benefits have disappeared by the one-year mark with an increase in revascularization procedures and hospitalization for heart failure in the culprit lesion group. Does this represent the fact that you've simply got to live long enough to get revascularized uh, and heart failure? Uh, or are there competing interests at play here? Either way, it just shows the difference between 30-day and one-year outcomes that are seen in these big studies. Okay, uh, let's go on to another study which has looked at long-term outcomes of a previous study, and this is the six-month outcomes after restrictive or liberal transfusion for cardiac surgery. Uh, the TRICS-3 trial investigators again published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So in 2017, the TRICS-3 trial reported that in patients undergoing cardiac surgery, 
who are at moderate to high risk of death. A restrictive red cell transfusion strategy, which is a transfusion trigger for hemoglobins less than 7.5 grams per deciliter, was non-inferior to a liberal strategy. That's a trigger of hemoglobin less than 9.5. With respect to the composite outcome of death from any cause, AMI, stroke, or new onset renal failure with dialysis, there was also less blood transfused. There was an interesting subgroup analysis reporting an interaction with age. That is, restrictive transfusion strategy was associated with a lower risk of the composite outcome than liberal strategy among patients 75 years of age or older with an odds ratio of 0.7, 95% confidence intervals of 0.54 to 0.89, but not among younger patients, odds ratio of 1.17. And there was a p-value of 0.004 for interaction. This effect was consistent in an analysis according to decades of age, so beginning at age less than 45 years, or with age as a continuous variable with the use of restricted spline modelling. So this paper reports the same cohort of patients followed up for six months, and they found that there was no difference in the primary outcome. It occurred in 17.4% restrictive versus 17.1% in the liberal group. And the lower risk of composite outcome in the restrictive group among patients aged over 75 years was still present. So that means we've got out to six months in cardiac surgery evidence that a restrictive strategy is appears to be beneficial in patients aged over 75 years of age and doesn't appear to be of consequence for younger patients. Okay, let's move to JAMA. And we've got two papers that have looked at airway management in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So in the first is effect of a strategy of a supraglottic airway device versus tracheal intubation during out-of-hospital cardiac arrest on functional outcome, the Airways 2RCT. So in recent years, the suggestion that basic airway management, face mask or bag mask ventilation, in cardiac arrest is equivalent or superior to advanced airway management, that is intubation, what about the in-between step of insertion of some type of supraglottic airway device? This prospective cluster randomized trial sets out to answer the question, does an initial strategy of a supraglottic airway device for advanced airway management during non-traumatic out-of-hospital cardiac arrest result in a better functional outcome compared with tracheal intubation? So overall, 1,523 paramedics and 9,296 patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest were randomised with 4,410 assigned to tracheal intubation and 4,886 to supraglottic airway. They used the eye gel, which is the most commonly used device for out-of-hospital arrest in England. At arrival, the trial paramedic, oh, so when the trial paramedic arrived at the scene, 31% of patients were receiving airway management. The primary outcome was favourable functional outcome, a modified Rankine scale score of 0 to 3, 
at hospital discharge or after 30 days if still hospitalized. And that occurred in 6.4% of patients in the supraglottic group and 6.8% of patients in the tracheal intubation group. And there was no different. It does point out yet again how uncommon good neurological outcomes are out of, out of hospital cardiac arrest. Of the 7,576, that's 81% of patients who received advanced airway management, more patients in the supraglottic airway device group had a good outcome, 3.9 versus 2.6% in the tracheal intubation group, with an adjusted odds ratio of 1.57, 95% confidence intervals of 1.18 to 2.07. Now, that effect was also observed in the analysis of patients grouped according to the first type of advanced airway management intervention received. 4.2% in the supraglottic airway group versus uh, 2% in the tracheal intubation group. So it seems a strategy of using a supraglottic airway device for advanced airway management did not provide a superior functional outcome for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. But the secondary outcomes are interesting. 21% of patients who did not receive advanced airway management achieved a good outcome compared with 3.3% who received advanced airway management. So there's a bit of natural selection there, isn't there? In patients who received advanced airway management, supraglottic airway was associated with better outcomes than intubation. However, the clinical significance of that is debatable. This study is limited by the large number of patients who did not receive advanced airway management, the larger number of patients in the supraglottic group who received airway management, and the crossover between groups. So the second article published at the same time in JAMA was the effect of a strategy of initial laryngeal tube insertion versus endotracheal intubation on 72-hour survival in adults without a hospital cardiac arrest. So this paper looks at laryngeal tube insertion compared with endotracheal intubation on survival. It was a cluster crossover randomized trial of 3,004 adults without a hospital cardiac arrest performed in the US. And they report that there were 352 patients, that's 11.7%, who received bag mask ventilation only. The primary outcome of 72-hour survival was 18% in the laryngeal tube group and 15.4% in the ET group, an adjusted difference of 29%, which ended up being a p-value of 0.04. The secondary outcomes were ROSC occurred in 28 versus 24%, hospital survival 11 versus 8%, which is a p-value of 0.01, favorable neurological status at discharge 7 versus 5%, it's a p-value of 0.02, and in the intention to treat population after post hoc adjustment for age, sex, initial cardiac rhythm, response time, witnessed status, and bystander chest compressions, the difference in 72 hour survival between laryngeal tube and endotracheal intubation was not statistically significant. So, a strategy of initial laryngeal tube insertion compared with endotracheal intubation was associated with greater likelihood of 72-hour survival. But again, there are limitations in study design and finding.
So where do these two papers with slightly different outcomes and to be fair, slightly different ways into the study, where do they leave us? Particularly if we consider the articles in the last couple of years, those large retrospective articles that looked at time of intubation. I can't help but think, given the methodological limitations, that these studies simply tell us that we should provide good clinical care, support the airway, but not be focused entirely on achieving endotracheal intubation, particularly if we have adequate ventilation by other means. But that's up for everyone else to debate. Let's just go back to the New England Journal of Medicine. Remember, we had the Paramedic 2 collaborators publish a randomized trial of epinephrine or adrenaline and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So most of us probably don't spend a lot of time questioning the use of adrenaline and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Um, it has been standard therapy for decades, but perhaps we should. Uh, observational studies involving more than half a million patients have reported higher rates of return of spontaneous circulation, but worse neurological outcomes in patients who are treated with epinephrine and trials of high versus low dose or comparison to vasopressin or placebo have not shown benefit. There's plausible mechanism of harm due to increase in myocardial oxygen demand and procoagulant effects. Given this, the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation, ILCOR, called for the initiation of a placebo-controlled trial to establish whether adrenaline or epinephrine is safe and effective as a treatment for cardiac arrest. So the Paramedic 2 trial occurred from December 14 to October 17. It was a multi-centre, randomised, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial and was conducted by five NHS ambulance services in the UK. Patients were eligible if they had out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and received ALS by a paramedic. They were assigned to receive parenteral epinephrine, one milligram or saline placebo by the opening of a trial pack containing either agent every three to five minutes. 8,014 patients were enrolled and they were well matched at baseline. The median time from call to trial drug administration was about 20 minutes. ROSC in pre-hospital resuscitation phase was higher in the adrenaline group, 36% versus 12%, as was proportional, the proportion of patients transported to hospital, 51% versus 31%. The primary outcome was 30-day mortality, 3% in the adrenaline group, 2 or 3.2% in the adrenaline group, and 2.4% in the placebo group, unadjusted odds ratio of 1.4, uh, confidence intervals of 1.06 to 1.82, p-value of 0 0.02, number needed to treat 112. The secondary outcomes are important. There was no evidence of significant difference between groups in survival to hospital discharge with favourable neurological outcome, 2.2 versus 1.9%, severe neurological impairment, which is a score of 4 or 5 on the modified Rankin scale, was more common among survivors in the epinephrine group, 31 versus 18%. 
So overall, this raises a crucial question about how we analyze and perform out-of-hospital cardiac arrest studies. What is the outcome our patients and families care most about? So is it overall survival irrespective of your neurological outcome? That is life at all costs. It seems unlikely when we discuss this with patients and what they value. Is it survival with good neurological outcome? This seems closer to the mark and an important positive outcome. But do we also need to consider survival with bad neurological outcome? Because this may be more or less than dying or survival with good outcome. Perhaps it's time to ask our patients. Finally, in JAMA, an unusual article, but an important one nonetheless. The association between traumatic brain injury and risk of suicide. So individuals with a history of TBI have been shown to have higher rates of non-fatal deliberate self-harm, suicide and all-cause mortality than members of the general population. Is there an association between TBI requiring hospital contact and risk of suicide? This registry-based retrospective cohort study from Denmark provides an extraordinary insight into this question. The authors identified 560,000 people who suffered a TBI from a total population of 7.4 million for the study period 1980 to 2014. There were a total of 34,000 deaths by suicide in the entire population during this period, with 3,500 occurring in the TBI population. Analysis revealed that the absolute rate of suicide in individuals with hospital contact for TBI was 40.6 per 100,000 person years versus 19.9 per 100,000 person years in those with no hospital contact for TBI, a difference of 20.7 per 100,000 person years, 95% confidence intervals were 19.3 to 22.1. This effect was persisted after adjustment for sex, age and calendar period. And the fully adjusted analysis showed an increased risk of suicide by TBI severity and the number of TBI events. There was temporal proximity since the last medical contact for TBI that was associated with the risk of suicide with a risk ratio of 3.67 for the first six months and 1.76 after seven years. And they were compared with the background population. Other factors associated with higher risk of suicide after TBI included diagnosis of psychological illness before or after TBI and deliberate self-harm before or after TBI. So traumatic brain injury may be associated with an increased risk of suicide, particularly in the early period after the injury, and it's associated with increased severity and more or longer medical contact. This is at least partly mediated by psychiatric symptoms as there is an increased risk in this population. Well, that's it for the Critique Journal Club podcast for August 2018. Come to the website, have a look around. Otherwise, we'll see you next month.